Hallelujah. Oh, Father, we look to the evidences throughout your scriptures of the glorious unfolding of your plan of redemption. And we see all of history bowing to your holy word and decree as the Son of Man, Christ himself, was born of Mary and dwelt among us. He went on and lived the perfect life, fulfilling the law, going to Calvary, his sacrifice, the just payment for our sins, who, as Lamb of God and our substitute, was crucified in our place. But he was risen from the dead just three days in that grave, and he received new life, was resurrected, and later ascended, and now rules, reigns, and intercedes for us before the right hand of the Father. We look to Christ today. We look to the hero of our faith. We look to the satisfactory payment of His blood and His torn body. We look to His holy word to know who we are in light of a holy God and how we might be reconciled to Him. Now, as we turn to the Holy Scriptures, the word of Christ recorded from ages past all the way through the New Testament and now stands an immutable standard, a holy refuge for all of those whose eyes are open to see its glorious truths. I pray that you would awaken us, Lord, with joy and conviction, conviction of sin that yet remains, joy in the salvation secured in Christ and power to proclaim this message to the lost. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open your scriptures together and more than this, to partake at your table. We pray that you would write upon the souls of each one here as they partake at the communion of these communion elements, Lord, write upon their souls the reality, the significance, the beauty, the majesty, the glory of Christ and his finished work on Calvary. In all of this, we thank you, Lord, that we have such great and sufficient means that our faith might be strengthened today. We pray that you would do exactly that as we open up your scriptures. Open up our minds, Holy Spirit, as we now turn to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a great opportunity we have this morning to open up God's word, and I would encourage you to do so by turning to Galatians chapter 1. This will be our second message in our Galatians series as we open up this book and see what instructions Paul has for the church of that day, and then by extension to us even now, as we behold in our midst, and generally speaking, many challenges that are similar to the church of old. And so Galatians becomes a great book for us to consider, especially when we consider the question, what is the true gospel of Jesus Christ? And how do we distinguish one claim of gospel truth, one claim of salvation from another? The title of this morning's message is Christ Slave. Christ Slave. This is an identity that Paul himself adopted. He was a slave of Christ. We'll find in the Greek, the word is doulos. Christ had done something incredible in Paul's life, even saved him and ransomed him from the hell he knew he deserved. He self-described again as chief of sinners. So therefore, the least that he could do is to present himself, as he says in Romans 12:1, as a living sacrifice, which was his reasonable service and worship to the Lord who had redeemed him from hell itself. Now, it's only natural when one considers this amazing work that Christ has done to save us, that we would then naturally dedicate ourselves in service to Him, whatever that may be, indeed, to become His bondservant, to become His slave. Now, the aim of this morning's message is to equip us with the means to identify true Christianity, or you could say true apostolic Christianity. Equip us with the means, the Word of God will equip us through the book of Galatians with the means to identify true Christianity and to distinguish them from claims of Christ and Christianity that are illegitimate. So with your Bible open today to Galatians chapter 1, let us consider verses 10 through 17. Would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word this day? Again, Galatians 1 is our text, verses 10 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord as it, as it is proclaimed in your ears today. Paul says, for, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me 
is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Maybe if we could get those lights up just a little more on this cloudy day, that would be good. This morning, I want to read to you two quotes I came across in my study, the first by Matthew Henry, the second by Albert Barnes. With respect to Paul and passages like this, where he distinguishes the gospel according to accurate accurate terms that are verifiable according to Scripture and according to the terms whereby God has chosen to reveal Himself. Matthew Henry says of Paul, quote, In preaching the gospel, the apostles sought to bring reasons to obedience, not of man, but of God. But Paul would not attempt to alter the doctrine of Christ, either to gain their favor or to avoid their fury. In so important a matter, we must not fear the frowns of men, nor seek their favor by using words of men's wisdom. Second quote, Barnes continues along similar lines. He says, quote, he, speaking of Paul, derived his authority from God and not from the Sanhedrin or any earthly council. And the purpose of all this is to say that he had not received his commission to preach from man, but had received it directly from God. These two quotes illustrate to us the ground of the authority upon which Paul leaned and Paul stood when he proclaimed the message of truth, the true gospel. In preaching the gospel, as Henry noted, the apostle sought to bring persons to obedience, that is, he sought to bring other people into subjection to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, not of men, but of God. When he proclaimed the authority, the rule, the power, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, he was doing so on Jesus' own terms, not on the terms of men. But all would not attempt to alter, Paul would not attempt to alter the doctrine of Christ either to gain their favor or to avoid their fury. In other words, if you twist, shape, adapt, and customize the message of the gospel, motivated to make it sound better so people would embrace it, or to avoid the backlash from a hostile culture, what you have done as you have drifted away from the teaching of Christ to that which is no gospel at all. And not only is your word ill-effective and poison virtually in the ears of those who hear, but but it also loses all power to proclaim and to advance the glory of God, disqualifies the minister from his position, and in the end serves only to confuse, to distort, and to discourage, and to quench the otherwise blazing powerful furnace of God's truth. Sometimes God has ordained that when His Word is proclaimed in power and with authority, that it would inspire a reaction among the men who hear it, of anger and hostility. Now, in God's providence, we can trust that He will use a reaction like this even for His glory. We know that the word martyr in the New Testament also refers to one who bears his testimony, one who, that is to say, who is willing to go to pay the highest price uh, for not compromising the truth. Now, there are movements afoot today, probably much more likely than the one I just described. In other words, We may not be in a season in our culture where persecution uh, via real suffering, imprisonment, and death is the price that we pay for preaching the true gospel, but there are many movements afoot today to change and to adapt and to customize and to revisit and to reconstruct 
the message of the Bible so that it is more pleasing to the ears of those (coughs) who are conditioned by sins that are prevalent today. And so to these tendencies, Paul brings a corrective in the book of Galatians. In the context of challenges to his own authority, that is to say, Paul, as an apostle, there is challenges to his authority as an apostle, and also corruption on the question, what is the gospel? And to these issues, Paul provides the church for all times, for all time, the mark or marks of authenticity to reinforce our discernment on matters of spiritual life and death. Paul, you could say, provides something of a diagnostic test, and it's in the context of our passage today. And this test provides a framework for evaluating ourselves and also a framework to identify imposters and apostasy that would otherwise derail the chief end of the church even today, that chief end being to glorify the Lord, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So let us consider uh, three aspects of this authenticity test to know whether or not what you are hearing is the true gospel. Let us consider them under this heading today. Defending his credentials, Paul provides a three-part Christianity diagnosis or diagnostic test. Paul provides a three-part test to know whether or not what we are hearing is the true gospel. Number one, there's a servant-master test. Number two, there's a source-authority test. And number three, perhaps we could say there's a sovereignty test. What is the relationship of servant and master in the construction of the message you are hearing? What is the relationship between the authority and the source and that which is proclaimed? And finally, how does God's sovereignty figure into this message of so-called gospel preaching that you may encounter? These three aspects uh, are just a way to construct our test today, and I believe are a helpful, uh, a, a helpful measure whereby we can exercise discernment even in our hour to know whether or not the message that is proclaimed is indeed the message of Scripture. Let us consider point one. Again, Paul, defending his credentials, provides a test, and we'll call this the servant-master test. Back in our text today, let us consider Galatians 1.10 in some depth. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant or doulos, you could say slave, of Christ. Read that again and notice the question that Paul is raising that is a test to know whether or not he is an authentic proclaimer, apostle of the message of Christ alone. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the servant master test, if you will. You know in part whether or not somebody is holding to the truth with respect to their motivations, who they are trying to please. Are they proclaiming something or stating something, promoting something in order to please man? Are they catering to a market demographic? Are they sensitive to the preferences of the hearers and thus are fashioning what they say, taking, twisting, reshaping what they claim to be the gospel to make it more... uh, pleasing to ears who simply want to be tickled with the message that they prefer or they have designed? If so, you know that that message is not of God. How do you know that someone is truly proclaiming the Word of God? Well, in part, we know that they are not seeking the approval of man, but instead the approval of God. This is the basic question of fear. The fear of the Lord, as the Scriptures say, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. There is no foundational point from which to proclaim anything truthful if it's not rooted and grounded in the fear of the Lord. Those who are authentic proclaimers of the gospel fear God more than they fear men. They fear God more than they fear, in Matthew Henry's words, the favor of men. They'd rather be judged pleasing to the Lord than accepted by their neighbors. They'd rather be judged in good communion with a holy God than with the current trends in culture. 
Now, not only this, they fear the Lord, the repercussions of sinning against the Lord more than the repercussions of a quote-unquote sinning against culture or against the false gods of the day. They know that God is ultimately sovereign and all must answer before Him one day. So there are fearful consequences with misrepresenting Him. There are fearful consequences for misrepresenting the Lord. Now, uh, that is in contrast to those who are more humanistically wired and fear man more than God. They are more scared, than, uh, rather than the day of judgment, they are more scared of being judged by their peers, of falling short of whatever is the value set, the most important things on the minds, the, basically the idolatrous notions of current culture. So this is the servant master test. <clears throat> now notice Paul is contrasting the way he has proclaimed the gospel now and the stance that he has taken to his former life. He says again, verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? The implication being, at one time I sought the approval of men, the Sanhedrin, religious leaders, the elite of the religious types, Pharisees and so forth, that motivated him uh, to seek their favor, to go and to search out Uh, victims that he could persecute for following Christ. But Paul experienced a radical change. When he was saved, when he was converted, he now sought to please Christ and no longer the religious elites. The culture of that day, which said to advance in the standards of academia or to advance in the ranks of importance, you must abide by the dictates of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the like and the so-called religious leaders of the day. Paul was not seeking for approval from them anymore, but instead from God. He goes on in the last phrase, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, Paul recognizes there was a time when he indeed tried to please man, but no longer. Let's turn to Philippians 3 to get a little background what Paul's referring to. Here Paul contrasts the things that he formerly valued to his new life in Christ. And the juxtaposition could not be more stark. In Philippians 3, he says the following, verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And notice verse 5, as he gives his credentials, Uh, before he met Christ. It says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Pause there. Paul used to consider great gain the uh, affiliation with all of these various clubs or associations, if you will, a privileged tribe, an important people in Benjamin. More than this, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a sterling example of what his culture held out to be a man of influence, authority, and importance. And according to the law, that is the self-righteous, the standard of self-righteousness, whereby you project to your neighbors your own holiness and your own uh, ability to hold uh, things together, your remembering of the law and comparing yourself among others, you really stand out as pious and righteous. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, willing to fight for what he believed. As to righteousness under the law, blameless and so forth. All these things were gained to him. But something changed. Verse 7, he says, whatever gain I had. I counted loss for Christ. No longer seeking to please man, but please God. This motivated Paul to adopt this radical change of mind. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There it is again. Paul has identified himself as a servant or slave of his Lord Jesus Christ in so many words. He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And he goes on to say, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is, the righteousness that boasts of Christ, 
righteousness that Paul could not claim he accomplished in himself. This Greek word doulos, slave, or a servant, sometimes translated that Paul uses to identify himself, it's pretty straightforward in its definition. It's someone who belongs to another. It's another uh, idea connected to it is a bond slave. Uh, no ownership or rights of our own. All of them have been forfeited to the, to the uh, master in, this case, in the case of a doulos or a slave. Is this a popular term of self-identity today? What does it mean to be a slave of Christ? Now, in this culture, we've uh, almost rewritten the gospel to make uh, American slavery the original sin and then rewritten righteousness to eschew that as much as possible, so much so that the concept of slavery is so foreign to the ideal of the American mind that we probably, unless our minds are renewed, could not even understand an iota of what Paul's getting at here. But in the Scriptures, suffice it to say that slavery is an inescapable condition. The, the world lies to us. They say that uh, no one should be a slave. Everyone should be a completely autonomous, a self-governing creature who lives as if he were a law and a God unto himself. That's the message of liberty and freedom uh, that we hear proclaimed today in our culture. Well, this is foolish. We are contingent beings. We did not create ourselves. We can't create one more day at the end of our life. We can't accomplish anything apart from the God who allows us to use the tools that He has granted even the breath in our lungs to do a single thing. We are ultimately and only dependent on the Lord. That is to say that as contingent, as created creatures, as we've learned in Genesis of late, slavery is an inescapable condition. Man is slave to something. He's either slave to his sin and the world and the flesh and the devil, or he is a slave to Christ. And Paul understands this, and he proclaims unapologetically, unequivocally, with boldness, I am a slave to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His will is my command. I surrender my rights and my demands to His wishes and His plans for me in my life. And this is how you know that Paul was an authentic proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was his Lord. The thoughts and the affirmations of men was not his Lord. His past uh, uh, ambitions to become a Hebrew of Hebrews were no longer his Lord. Christ was his Lord. So here he puts forth the master and servant test to know if someone is truly submitted to Christ and therefore we can believe. Now, there is a relationship between your mission and your commander. This is, um, this is axiomatic, of course, but in Matthew 28, I just want to remind you of the context of the Great Commission. Notice verse 18. Before Jesus says to go forth and preach, he uh, notes this. He draws our attention to an authority claim. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, In other words, verse 18, the application is this. Anyone who follows me will be my slave, will be my servant, will be my subject. Why? Because all, ultimate, and only a source of authority uh, at the highest level is in Jesus' hands. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then... Flowing from this, verse 19, the command, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul understood directly from the words of Christ the relationship between mission and authority. The one who has authority over Paul is the one who defines his mission, his job, the vision for his life for him. And in the Scriptures, the gospel is, uh, in the Gospels, it's laid out, as we have read in the book of Matthew, since Christ has all authority in heaven and earth, therefore, He has a job for each of His servants to do, to go forth and to proclaim Him. There is a relationship between our master and our mission. Now, if we serve another master, then our mission will be different. We'll be less motivated to proclaim the virtues and the value of the gospel if Christ is not our all in all, if we are not consciously uh, brought by the proclaiming of His Word back to a place of repentance and submission to our Lord and our Savior, we will begin to live and to proclaim other things. And what will this be? It will be a false teaching, a false gospel, a false message, a false testimony. 
Why? Because we are not measuring up to the servant master test. We're not living as if Christ is our Lord because He is if we are truly in Him. The relationship between false teaching and uh, this uh, failure of the servant master test was evident even in Galatians. How do we know this? Because they were quick to desert Christ and to accept a different gospel. Galatians 1.6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some of you, or some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Uh, that's interesting, Paul, you might ask. How do we know who they are? And he answers, give them the servant master test. Are they seeking the approval of man? Are they seeking your approval or the approval of God? Do they fear men? Do they fear God? Are they trying to please the ears of the hearers or themselves or their ambitions? Or are they trying to please God? After all, the only true gospel proclaimer is a slave of Jesus Christ. Second test this morning, source authority. Authoritative sources. Defending his credentials... Paul provides a Christian diagnostic test, if you will. We've covered master and servant test. Next is a source authority test. Where did Paul get his message? Let's continue to read in our text today, Galatians 1.11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So where did the source and the authority for Paul's gospel come from? came from God, not man. Verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So here we have clear a proclamation we can read maybe through 14. For verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So here is another test, if you will. Where did Paul get his gospel? It was not man's gospel. Man's gospel is the contrast to the true gospel. What is the true gospel? Well, Paul has explained it in many places, but perhaps the uh, central text that we remember as we think about what is the true gospel would be 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there briefly with me for a moment. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Again, notice the language. Paul is delivering something that he received. Received from who? Well, contextually, this is from God. This is an authoritative, divine, revelatory source. This is not his or any other religious expert idea, this is from God Himself. I received what Christ, uh, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. It goes on to say that some of them have fallen asleep, meaning died, Then he goes on, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the the church of God. Verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or uh, or they, so we preached, and so you believed. So again, Paul is stating What is the gospel? And he's reaching back to a message that is independent of him. It's a message that was self-disclosed by God in flesh, by Christ himself. He came and lived the gospel in these acts of redemption and self-giving. That he died and was raised from the dead. And that the message of this truth was proclaimed. And the apostles were commissioned by his personal calling forth to bring this gospel forward into the world. Now, in contrast to this, what is the gospel of men? Well, in the context of Galatians, the gospel, the false gospel, not that there was another one in the words of Paul, was this, that yes, we need God's grace, but 
There are other things you must do to secure your salvation as well. And they were adding certain works of law to the message of Christ alone, grace alone. And once they had done this, once they had presumed law-making authority and added to the requirements for salvation something that God had not intended, they were usurping His authority. And now they became the source of the message of the gospel. And they left the true living fountain of life. And now they were preaching a gospel of men, not the gospel of God. Do we have examples of this today? We certainly do. Think about all of the things that come in the name of the gospel. Perhaps a term gospel in name only. It gets mangled, manipulated, and proclaimed, and we demur from the word in so many ways in the self-professed church these days. What are examples of man's gospel? Perhaps a seeker-sensitive gospel that reduces the hard edge of the proclamation of judgment due our sin and tries to ease people into the kingdom through certain bait-and-switch messages. A message that doesn't leave you crying out, men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? But a message that promises health and self-sufficiency and security and assurance and joy and all of this before we come in contact with the true message that we stand worthy of judgment in the face of a holy God. This is an example of the gospel of men. I was at a meeting recently. I just happened to stop by. I was driving by and there was an altar call at the end and there was this heretical statement. Uh, The guy said, Jesus has done all that he possibly can. The rest remains up to you. So God has done everything he can and now the power to be saved that last bit remains with you to now come to the altar is kind of a typical altar call type message. Perhaps unbeknownst to this uh, proclaimer, he was saying that God himself is not sufficient to draw unto salvation those who are appointed for the same. A message like that has a man's gospel element to it. Why? Because it denies that God is sovereign and he calls to new life that which is dead and sin. It proclaims a gospel that says you're partially alive and you're responsible for that last step um, in and of your ability to choose. There is a responsibility in the hearing of the word for man to exercise his will to accept the gospel and to repent of his sin and to believe. But we understand from the teaching of scripture that even that ability is the grace of God. God is sovereign in the work of salvation from beginning to fruition. There are other themes that begin to eclipse the message of Scripture and rise uh, in, the, in the estimation and, and, and become distractions these days, and they reorient anthropology, the nature of man and the nature of God. One thinks of man-centered uh, love ideas, which propose to rearrange the sexual ethics to allow for different sexual orientations in the church today un- and, and proclaim that is within keeping of biblical ethics, even New Testament uh, living for us to be more affirming of all these uh, aberrant views of what it means to be a man, a woman, or any other of uh, customizable genders today. What is this? This is man's gospel. This is to uh, seek a different source authority for who is man. It's to listen to someone who says, or an idea that is promoted that says, man is not made in God's image. It's not true in this message that man, uh, that male and female, he created them. But uh, instead, we substitute that truth for something of man's uh, making and man's ideas. Spiritual depth Uh, can be conflated with emotion and experience sometimes in man's gospel. In other words, instead of proclaiming the truth of the Word of God as the powerful authority, we might compel people's emotions and experiences as a substitute for that. These are all examples today of how the gospel of men can corrupt the gospel of God. So let's give it the source authority test, as well as the servant master test. What What is proclaimed when it is measured up to Scripture? Does it fall short? Where do these ideas come from? Do they come from culture? Do they come from shifting affections and values in uh, in our day? Or do they come from the Word of God? Paul says that he got his gospel by divine revelation. He says, I did not receive it, verse 12, from any man, this is Galatians 1, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of, 
of Jesus Christ. Paul was an apostle, and this revelation came direct to him. It was the Word of God proclaimed to him, and he was therefore commissioned to write down that God-breathed Word, and we have His words even today. Now, in this day and age, in the post-apostolic era of the church age, we uh, can apply Paul's message here as the Word of God itself, the closed canon, the written Scriptures that we have before us today. In other words, what is the only source and authority? What is divine revelation? What is the authoritative grounds upon which the gospel, the gospel claims are to be judged? It is the Word of God, rightly divided, rightly proclaimed, rightly understood by the Holy Spirit's help. Now, the young people this morning were studying special revelation. And special revelation is another term for God's written Word. It's distinguished from general revelation, which is evidence of God in nature, creation, things around us. That which is specific to God's purposes for man is written down in one place in His Holy Word. Now, uh, I wonder if any young people remember three things that we can only know through special revelation. You guys remember from your study this morning? What are three things that we know from special revelation alone? Anyone? Anyone? Bible. So the Bible tells us something that we can't learn from nature. What would that be? Three things. The Trinity. Good job, Jaden. That's right. The first that the children were studying this morning is the nature of God. Who is God? God is a Trinity, one God in three persons. This is something that we get from divine revelation, from the Word of God, from special revelation alone. A second one is, how is, how is he to be worshipped? We know this. We know that he is to be worshipped in spirit and truth from the Bible alone. And thirdly, the plan of salvation. How do we know what uh, the plan of salvation is? How we might be saved uh, through Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary. Again, it's from divine revelation alone. This is the source authority test that we ought to use. Is the message of salvation hope for a better future, promises of help through difficulties and trials. The, generally speaking, this message, the message of salvation that is so popular in the ears of all who hope for a better day tomorrow, does that stack up against divine revelation? Or is what you're hearing of all the voices in the cultural wind out there a cheap substitute for what God alone has proclaimed, or God has proclaimed exclusively in His holy word? Now notice what Paul was tempted to appeal to um, instead of divine revelation in a former life. He says in verses 13 and 14, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I, was, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Uh, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And notice that phrase, traditions of my fathers. There was a time in Paul's life where the source authority for his motivations was the traditions of his fathers, and that changed to divine revelation, the Word of God. Traditions, the Word of God. Now, these are both at play today. Recently, unless you're under a rock somewhere, I'm sure you've heard that the Catholic Church is once again embroiled in a deep and systemic, it would appear, scandal that, yes, reports are, goes all the way to the top. We're talking systemic abuse by clergymen of uh, young and vulnerable uh, victims and so forth. And it's a horrific display of depravity that has found a, an institutional home all over the globe, it would seem, as rumors come from here and there, and then certain uh, claims uh, with even more obvious weight to them through grand jury investigations and so forth, indicting hundreds of uh, of officers and, and, and then uh, talking about thousands of victims. Now, as you listen to the fallout, even in the ears of some, or in the, in the, through the voices, your ears are tuned to the voices of conservative Catholics, I will often hear this. They'll say, well, in the end, I trust that the church has endured this far and it will continue to endure. Catholicism leans heavily on the traditions of men because uh, in their conception of authority, it's not Scripture alone. Catholicism does not hold to what we hold in this church, sola scriptura. The Bible alone is the only rule of faith and practice. 
There is a three-legged stool, so to speak, in Catholicism. It's tradition, it's the magisterium, the officers, the authority of church officers, and thirdly, it's the Scripture. Well, what happens is this creates an open door for the enemy to absolutely come in and to exploit. But let me tell you, there is no hope, there's no assurance, there's no future, there's no salvation, there's no solace in the traditions of men. Why? Men are sinners. Men, there's only one perfect man whose every word can be trusted without having to uh, you know, verify it by a higher standard. That's Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Everyone else, their words are subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. There's no infallibility to be found outside of Christ alone. And to the degree that you create ulterior sources of authority, you bring in corruption. You bring in sin. And instead of the self-correcting Word of God that brings repentance and a change of direction, we bring in internal rot and poison into the ostensible church if we appeal to other sources of authority like the mag- like a magisterium leaders in the church or the traditions of men. So we see that right here in the book of Galatians, we have a corrective, we have tests to know what is being proclaimed is the true gospel or not. Servant master test, source authority test. Thirdly, and finally this morning, there's a sovereignty test, if you will. Notice in verse 15, as we close out our text this morning, what Paul says about his own experience in salvation. He says, But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, When Paul speaks of his own salvation experience, he appeals to the sovereignty of God. When there is a claim of salvation, when there is a proclamation of the truth, if it comes with any credit taken for oneself, you can judge that to be man's gospel. But when the gospel is proclaimed in these terms, we see that it passes the sovereignty test. Paul says, when he who set me apart before I was born called me by His grace and revealed His Son to me, and then he completes his long Pauline sentence. Three things. Predestination, three uh, theological concepts wrapped up in Paul's first half, uh, in the first half of Paul's sentence here. Number one, predestination. He who set me apart before I was born, turn to Romans 8, we'll touch upon that in a moment. Secondly, effectual call. He called me by His grace, the grace of God sufficient to call a Paul, the most unlikely of converts by many measures, from his life of hyper-zealous church persecution to laying down his life as a slave of Christ to serve the churches, even going to his own death. This radical transformation was the work, the evidence of grace, grace that called him from darkness into the marvelous light, grace that struck him blind and gave him back his sight, grace that brought Ananias to prophesy and to confirm his calling to reach the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ, grace that intervened when he was on the path to persecute Christ's church and opened up the heavens and received the audible, direct, revelatory voice of Jesus Christ saying, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then thirdly, there's regeneration, a fundamental change. He revealed His Son to me. In other words, Paul's eyes were opened. He was able to see. Ironically, his physical eyes were struck blind. At the same moment, so to speak, his spiritual eyes were opened. He realized that he stood in the the way of Jesus Christ and His purposes, and he must surrender and submit to his Lord or be judged. So this is the sovereignty test, if you will. In Romans chapter 8, Paul, in another place, expounds the chain reaction of God's power and salvation. We call this sometimes the golden chain of redemption. Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the chain reaction of gospel work in the heart of a believer when God's sovereign grace intervenes and that which God has purposed from eternity past begins to come to fulfillment and fruition in the heart of a believer. Paul realized that even while he was out persecuting the church, when he was out condemning people to death for following Christ, his soon-to-be Lord, that even as he was doing that, God's purposes in eternity past had set him apart, that is, consecrated, singled him out for a particular use for his kingdom. And at such such times, it pleased God in his secret will to intervene. There he was in the way to Damascus. And his mission was interrupted. And his life would never be the same again. Why? Ultimately, why? Because he knew that Jesus Christ had set him apart before he was born. Now, when Paul was saved, was it at an altar call along the lines of what I described to you earlier, where there was a plea from a preacher up front uh, that you don't know what you're missing, please come forward. God's done everything He can do. The last thing remains to you, and I promise you it will be amazing and so forth. Is that the way, or was that the context of Paul's conversion? (laughs) Absolutely not. He was struck blind. He was interrupted on the course of his action. The sovereignty of God overrode Paul's will. It arrest, literally arrested him on the way to go somewhere and struck him to go and persecute the church, struck him blind and led him to Ananias who would prophesy his mission, his change of life, that he would be an apostle to the Gentiles. So this is incredible. Why does Paul appeal to this? Because it is a test of authenticity. In defending his credentials and the gospel, Paul points to the sovereignty of God in salvation. It is God who sets us apart before we are born. It is God who intervenes. Now, um, just by note here, when Paul says that he did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did they go up to Jerusalem, those who were apostles before me, this is not to say that he didn't eventually receive corroboration of the revealed Christ. It is to say that what happened in his heart was first and foremost the work of God, and then the confirmation came later. Consult, the word implies submitting for comment and approval to, uh, you know, to the object. And in this case, it would be the apostles before me. So Paul is pointing to the sovereignty of God, even in the revelation that he received uh, of the gospel and his calling as an apostle. Now, secondly, under this heading of sovereignty test, not only predestination, but effectual call. Paul describes his experience as one of sovereign grace where God called him by his grace and grace alone moved him uh, to make this to, uh, to an entire change of mind, uh, repentance, an entire change of life direction, an entire change of calling. This is important in the context of Galatians. Why? Because the grace alone message was compromised by this other quote-unquote gospel that was coming in to affect the church. The church was saying that grace alone is not sufficient to call you, but in order for salvation to be realized, it's grace plus some of your works. Grace plus some of your works. Now, this is antithetical to the truth of the Word of God. God had called uh, Paul by His grace alone. And so Paul issued that call of grace alone for salvation to the churches. And it was to be uncorrupted, uncompromised, unadulterated by any work of man. It was God's work alone. The works that we do, we walk in, are the effect, as we often say. They are the fruit. They are not the root or ground of our salvation. They're the fruit that grows from the tree, whose roots are grace alone into the living waters of Christ's righteousness. The grace ascending roots alone into the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to call us out of darkness into light. And finally, regeneration, an awakening of Paul's heart to the truth of the gospel. He says, at this calling of grace, it was pleased to reveal his son to me. That is, he who set Paul apart before he was born 
and called him by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. And this revelation was uh, powerfully evident on the road to Damascus as we've referenced several times. Don't need to turn there necessarily this morning, but let me remind you of the drama of that moment. This is Acts chapter 9. Paul was still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, but something happened. It says, now as he went on his way, this is Acts 9.3, he, Paul, approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So here we have the revelation of the Son of God to the spiritual eyes of Paul at the moment. Now he refers to, no doubt, when he says that the one who set him apart before he was born was pleased to reveal his son to him in order that he might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, I would encourage you to think about this conversion in light of other examples in the book of Acts as well. We've studied these of late, so we won't touch upon them this morning. But the previous chapter, Acts chapter 8, there is an apparent conversion of one named Simon the Magician. But it it would appear in the final analysis that he was attracted to external things, the spectacular ability and power to manipulate things miraculously. And in the end, he was condemned, he was cursed, because his conversion was not a realization of Jesus Christ. And his submission, apparent submission, was not one of, you are my Lord, I am your servant, I am your slave, I surrender. I have no standing in your presence on account of my sin unless you make me whole. But there was another man, and his story immediately follows. And he was the Ethiopian who was traveling uh, back to his home, having been in Jerusalem to worship. And he happened to be reading by the providence of God, who just like Paul, called him uh, forth from before time began, set him apart before he was born for this very moment. He was reading Isaiah 53, and God brought his servant Philip alongside and asked him, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, the man says, unless it is explained to me. And now, a divine opportunity provided and a great segue to the gospel, Philip shows the man, shows this Ethiopian official, Jesus Christ from the Old Testament scriptures fulfilled. And you see the contrast, do you not? One is an apparent conversion, but it doesn't stand the test of time. Simon, the magician, didn't pass the master-servant test. He was his own master. He wanted to impress people. He wanted to please people with his mighty works and to please himself with their accolades. He didn't pass the source authority test, the thing that drew him or the thing that he saw as being the source and the power was this ability to manipulate things, a miraculous touch, rather than the gospel by divine revelation of who Christ was and who he was in light. And it didn't pass the sovereignty test either. It was something that was short-lived. It didn't have the evidence of true conversion. But on the other hand, through the proclamation of God's word, the sufficient source, that divine revelation written from ages past, this man was converted and water was provided for his baptism. And he no doubt went back to his home with glorious stories, much like the apostle Paul, who would be converted in the next chapter of God's ability to appoint him and set him apart before he was born, to call him by his grace and to reveal his son to him right from the scriptures, right from Isaiah 53. Let us pray that in the proclamation of God's word today, that he would and has revealed his son to us. Let us pray in the communion table this morning, which we'll partake in shortly, if you are a Christian in this room, if you're in Christ in this room today, that God would reveal his son to us. These are means that God has given to proclaim to us the true gospel. In communion, at the Lord's table, we have the price of redemption displayed before us according to the true gospel. It is a grace for us to return often to this table because it places the gospel work of Christ front and center in our consciousness. It reminds us 
that there is no room to adjust, to, to change, or to add on, or to manipulate what is the true gospel with things that we would prefer. It, restore, it returns us to the power, to the source, authority, and to an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, and we uh, bow ourselves as servants and slaves of Christ, recognizing His sacrificial work that saved us at the Lord's table. The gospel work of Christ is front and center for us today, and it is here that we might taste and see the only authentic source and Savior for us. So let us add to our hearing of the Word of God today this act of remembrance at the Lord's table. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we're thankful that You have for us, Lord, means of grace and correction. When we should lose our way, when we should entertain sin, Father, Your Word comes calling us to repentance. Lord, calling us to leave behind the notions and corruptible nature that would easily distract and distort the truth of the gospel and calling us to remember the source and authority of our hope and our salvation. As we partake in these elements today for those that are believers in this room, Lord, I pray that you would write upon their souls, Lord, the final uh, and sufficient word of God in Jesus Christ, that they might remember his grace towards them, ransoming them from their sin, and also that they might be more equipped to stand in a day of competing voices, that they might proclaim you, Lord Jesus, with no compromise. Thank you, Lord, for these moments we have together. May you be pleased in each aspect of this service, and may it produce fruit for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So at this time, if you are a believer in this room, if you have confessed faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and only if you have done those things, the communion table is open to you. If you are, don't, do not have the assurance of your salvation, I would encourage you to not partake of the elements today. But if you are in Christ, then I would encourage you to come. The table is open to you. And at this time, I invite you forward. Those who are seated in the rear can come first and everyone else. And after we're all served, we'll return to our seats uh, don't partake until I come back, and then we will partake together. Lord bless you as you come. Welcome to his table.
Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Today we have the opportunity to be reminded by this cup and this piece of bread here of the work of Jesus Christ, who in history tangibly came, was born of woman, who lived the life that we could not live, who passed the probationary test in the wilderness and was proven the perfect lawkeeper. His righteousness on account of what he accomplished in his work and ministry is ours when it is transferred to our account and we are justified by him. We are declared righteous on account of what he has done to keep God's holy law. This work was made possible because he suffered and died in our place. Though we deserve to be killed, indeed condemned and suffer forever in hell eternal because of our great sin before a holy God, Jesus suffered in our place. His stripes were the payment of our peace with God. He was bruised for our transgressions and in him we have eternal life. This is the message of scripture from old to new, fulfilled in time in Jesus Christ. It is a message that will live on into eternity, even as the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world will be worshiped by those who will join him at the great marriage supper one day, praising him and glorifying him. This meal fulfilled in its ultimate glorious expression with the communion between God and those that he has redeemed as fulfilled in Christ our Lord, Christ our master. We his slaves, we are his servants. We thank you, God, for this truth. And so this morning we turn once again to the scriptures written by the apostle. And we find that he had received something that he presented to the church in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread today. Hallelujah. The apostle continues. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us partake of the cup together. Hallelujah. Father, at your table, remember the death of your son this day. Remember the stripes that his body endured, how it was torn and broken for us, how the thorns pierced his skull, how the blood drained from wounds in his side, his hands, and his feet. And how this precious blood was a payment for our sins. Remember that blood spilled, Lord, as the only perfect, blameless a lamb without spot, so much as a blemish, sacrificed for us, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. We remember more than this. We remember the gospel that was given to Paul, delivered to the church, 1 Corinthians 15, that not only did Christ our Lord die, but he rose again from the grave. And in his death, we know that our sins are paid for. And in his resurrection, we know we have eternal life. And we will join him one day. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ, our ascended God, our ascended Lord, our ascended Savior, rules and reigns and intercedes as high priest and inheritor of the nations to make intercession for us. We thank you that those who know him in this room will join together as answers to his prayers before the great throne of glory, Lord, having our sins paid for by his blood. 
and in, and in, in eternal fellowship with Him, joining in sweet communion forever and ever as we worship the Lamb that was slain. Thank you for these promises that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. And thank you, Lord, for reminding us of them today at your table and in your word. May these truths stick with us today and may we be equipped to faithfully represent you and to rightly discern, Lord, in a day that can otherwise be confusing. And all of this, we, bring glory, we praise you and bring glory to your name and ask, Lord, that you would uh, take us from here, that your spirit would continue, Lord, to evidence itself in sanctification and proclamation of your word and truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.